This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jay Rosen is moving this week, so I'm joined by my very special guest host, Christy Grant Hark. Stories this week include, is ESG a replacement for government inaction? Why compliance should lead the ESG effort? The current Freddie Mac CCO learned from the 2008 financial crisis. What is intentional integrity? Why the defense industry is struggling with cybersecurity? How the pandemic impacted the ABC fight in Latin America? Debunking attacks on the business roundtable statement of purpose of a corporation? More on the Hoskins case, Mozambique corruption, and a fractured C-suite. Podcasts, events, and more, all on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 266 for the week ending August 27, 2021, the Charlie Watts Tribute Edition. As drumheads worldwide mourn the death of Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts and Jay goes on the road, I am joined by our special guest, Compliance Christie herself, Christy Grantheart, to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught our eye. So Christy, uh, first of all, welcome back. I am so excited to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Christy, we've got a lot of stories today, so perhaps we could just jump right into it. We've got a couple of related items in our first two show notes, so we're going to take those up together because I thought it would really lend itself to a great conversation, and that's around ESG. And the first article comes to us from Lawrence Heim in his great Practical ESG blog, and he uh, reviews a law review article, and uh, the question posed was, Does ESG is ESG a replacement for government interaction? And Christy, the reason uh, I was struck by this story is the first thing that popped in my mind is, you know, business solutions to problems are the way to go, and really from time immemorial. And if I could go back to my early days in FCPA compliance, what I saw in the energy industry after the uh, industry sweep of enforcement actions was the businesses got together to come up with a business solution. And at least in the energy space, that was if you wanted to do business with any of the big boys, you had to have a compliance program. And I had a client who had a $15 million software company that did one thing, bolting onto something downhole to give a reading. And I told them, if you don't have a compliance program, no one's going to do business with you, no one's going to invest in you, and you're not going to be able to grow your company. They were so small, they uh, did not have their own sales force. It was 
all external commission sales agents, and I told them that's the highest risk, and you're selling worldwide. So let me put a compliance program in place. And they did, and two weeks later, one of the big boys came and wanted to make an investment. And the second thing they asked for after the tech specs was, we want to see your compliance program. And so when I saw this article, uh, it it really made me think, um, do we need the government to tell us to do ESG? And I think the answer is no. Now, the government certainly has a role. Regulators have a role, just as they do in all other uh, legal areas. And that's to set some standards uh, to protect investors from the SEC perspective, to make people uh, verify and be able to document what they might say in a reporting uh, mode. And certainly uh, for shareholders, that's an important consideration now is uh, ESG programs going forward. Uh, But when I saw that, I thought, we don't need the government to tell us to do everything. And if I could even use one more story, I was speaking in France at a compliance conference and uh, the panel was on investigations and a woman raised her hand and said, when is the government going to set the protocols for investigations? And I thought, why would you ever want the government to tell you how to do an investigation? <laughs> and then mm-hmm. I realized, you know, that's a civil law country and, and they have a very different perspective of what law should do as to our uh, Anglo-American tradition of common law, but um, I really advocate having a business solution uh, to what I see as a business problem. So um, if there's government interaction, I'm always for companies uh, taking uh, a step out. But that really leads me into introducing your article, because you wrote a great article this week and it's something I've been talking about and thinking about for some time. And you you crystallize my thinking in this, and I may purloin your work in the future. But why don't you tell us why you think compliance is so well-suited to lead the ESG effort and, and maybe tie it into uh, this government question? Yeah. So this government question, I think, is essentially at the heart of what are we what are we doing with ESG? Is this a commercial issue where we're responding to shareholders and we're responding to the need uh, perceived in the market, especially by millennial and uh, Gen Z investors, which is we want to support uh, companies that are environmentally conscious, socially conscious, and have good governance? Or is this something we want to enforce governmentally? Um, I come down entirely on the side you do, Tom that it doesn't make sense to have this be a government issue because if you create environmental calamities, there are laws against that. So if we're actually looking at things like measuring carbon footprint uh, and whether or not you did it, I don't think that's personally a a great place for the government to spend their resources. Um, And that actually did lead into why I wanted to write the blog that I did, which is why the case for compliance owning the ESG framework and the ESG program because I'm a little bit concerned that there's a bit of a shiny object syndrome going on with ESG that can take away from compliance. So where do we live in this thing? And and for me, about 50% of our clients currently, um, their compliance department is taking over ESG, similarly to the thing that they did with modern slavery and data privacy, where it's multi-stakeholder by nature. And I think there are six really strong reasons why compliance should own ESG. 
we already know how to create frameworks for programs. So I'm looking at the SASB and all these different uh, standards that people are trying to live up to in their companies. They tell you how to measure the things that are important and, and what kind of framework to put in for measurement. They don't talk about how to put together the program at the company in order to do that. So for me, our frameworks of what do you need for ESG? Policies, procedures, training, governance, reporting, monitoring, metrics. Sounds a heck of a lot like the federal sentencing guidelines. So to me, we already know how to do that framework. We already report to the board. We handle governance in a lot of programs. We work cross-functionally. We're already used to that with conflict minerals or modern slavery or these other issues. We already run due diligence. So huge amount of the supplier due diligence issues of looking at what your first, second, third tier suppliers are doing are covered at least somewhat by the ABAC program or by your other third-party due diligence review anyway, particularly with media and adverse media monitoring. Um, we already handle investigations and code violations. We are used to high-stakes problems. So to me, of all the functions that could manage this, you're going to need stakeholders from all over, right? You need HR to handle a lot of those diversity inclusion efforts. You need somebody who has specialty skills for that environmental piece. But somebody has to be the, the fulcrum that b brings all this together. And for me, compliance is absolutely the right answer to that. Let me throw uh, maybe a couple of other reasons that I think it's so critical. Number one, uh, as in all areas, you have to assess where you are. Uh, in the corruption of ABC world, it's called a risk assessment. In the ESG world, it's called a materiality assessment. And to me, that is uh, two sides of the same coin. And I don't think there's yep. any group that's more uh, ready, willing, and able, able to perform such an assessment than compliance. But the second thing that I really wanted uh, to get your thoughts on, in the June 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, I thought there were a couple or three sort of key formulations by the government, one of which was they mandated that the compliance function and the chief compliance officer really needs to lead the corporation's effort for institutional justice and institutional fairness. And once again, they didn't tell us how to do that, but they said that is directly within the ambit of compliance. And whether you call the S in ESG sustainability or social, it seems to me that those two concepts, fairness and justice, are absolutely critical to an overall ESG effort. Did, uh, do you find either of those persuasive? Oh, I absolutely do. I mean, if you look at the way that the, the DOJ programs are set up, or if you look at even things like ISO standards, if something is meant to apply to a huge range of companies, right, everything from small portfolio companies that some of like the private equity firms own to giant multinationals, there isn't a prescriptive way of how do we do this. What there are are always going to be overriding objectives you're supposed to meet and the ability to say how you're trying to meet them, but they can't be prescriptive. So it's, I think, completely analogous, exactly as you're saying, that if you're looking at institutional justice and there's so much overlay between what we're doing in compliance, institutional justice, and the aims of ESG, then we absolutely need the freedom to create it the way we need to. Um, and, and it's already in our remit, right? Like you said, the risk assessment um, piece of it, like the, um, the monitoring, all the rest of it, it's what we do. It just seems like we're the natural place to land for that. 
Well, I really, uh, really enjoyed your article. I really appreciated your article. And I'm going to evangelize as much as I can why compliance needs to lead to separate. I think you're spot on. And like I said, I'm going to be using a lot of your concepts going forward. Um, <laughs> Feel free to steal. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> so uh, next up, we have a story from Mingi Sun at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, where she interviewed uh, the current head of Freddie Mac, uh, the CCO, I should say, of Freddie Mac. And it was interesting for me for a couple of reasons, Christy. Number one, uh, they uh, they asked him what he had learned in his professional background that he thought was his biggest skill as a CCO. And it was, everything will be okay. If I could translate that in compliance, ease, stay cool, calm, and collected when all around you are going batshit crazy. And he said that because <laughs> uh, he worked for Lehman Brothers starting in 1999, And as he said in the article, almost lost his life on 9-11, coming up on the 20th anniversary of that. Uh, And also, he was at Lehman Brothers at the end. And he saw from both of those experiences that you just pick yourself up and move forward. And it struck me, uh, I think I've heard you say, if not those exact words, pretty much the same thing. That your role in compliance is not to tell everyone it's all going to be okay, but to be calm when all around you are failing and, and your company is failing or there's been some disaster because it doesn't serve anyone um, uh, to, to be anything other. And I know you, you've been a CCO and you've been in that role. And, and what's that like when you get a panic call? How do you, how do you calm, get people off the ledge? And, and is that a, a key function of compliance from your perspective? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, I think, wow, that is a very dramatic uh, story in terms of the 9-11 and the Lehman Brothers piece. Um, but I think in even slightly mo- more mundane issues, you know, I have, um, I will not, re- you know, explain when and where, but I've uh, watched challenges with violence and people being shot at um, in some emerging markets as, as issues that we were dealing with. And when you're looking at, you know, safety issues, life and death issues that are related to fraud or bribery or other challenges and um, crime, criminal issues, if you start to freak out, uh, there's nobody holding down the ship. And so I think that the best you can do is even if internally uh, you're starting to panic, you have to just breathe through that because people are looking for leaders. And that is the strongest thing that you can do is to show up and say, tell me what happened. Trust me, I will help you. We will get the help you need, and to and to mean that. So, absolutely, hundred percent. But what a great perspective! It's it's all going to be okay in the end. Essentially, take take the five year version of this, the five year view, the ten year view. You know, at the end of your life, the, you're probably not going to be thinking about um, how you felt that one day at Lehman Brothers. Though nine eleven, you may. But most compliance issues aren't nine eleven. They're challenges that you get through, even if you're being prosecuted, you know, that will end. So it's worthwhile to remember that while you're going through it. Uh, next up, we have an article from Al- Allie McDivitt in Compliance Week. What do you have for us, Christy? Absolutely. Well, Allie um, reviewed a book by Robert Chestnut, which is called Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution. And this book looks so interesting to me. She definitely piqued my interest. Um, It starts with this conundrum that uh, Chestnut, the author, says that 70% of people are willing to lie just a little and still feel good about themselves. So, 
people are really good at essentially justification, right, um, of, of what they think is right, even if they know they're doing wrong to justify it, which he calls the integrity trap. Um, I really liked some of the detail that Allie went into in her um, review. So something like uh, the book includes 16 code moments, which are, as she described, relatable workplace scenarios with integrity dilemmas. So frankly, I think compliance officers should get the book just to look at those and understand maybe how they can take those ideas and bring them into their training. Because I still think too, too few training sessions include ethics dilemmas as part of the compliance um, training piece, right? You know, don't do facilitation payments. Well, maybe we make it more difficult to think about that. So I think that would be really interesting. Um, and I love that uh, Chestnut, who was, by the way, the chief ethics officer at Airbnb, so that's some serious street cred, um, also had been a prosecutor, general counsel. Um, at Airbnb, he said, no company should have a provision in its code it's not prepared to enforce against its most valuable employee. So this one looks really good to me. I think that the business perspective of it looks good. I think the dilemmas look great. I mean, it's on my list now. I'm excited about it. So, Christy, next up, we have an article from the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, writing, of course, in Radical Compliance, where he talks about a report from CyberSaint, and it's about cybersecurity in the defense industry. Part of it's a little bit technical, uh, but part of it is a much broader implications for the compliance profession and corporations in general. Cybersecurity is absolutely mandatory now from the government's perspective. If you're going to do business with the government, you have to have a top-level cybersecurity program. And they're going to expand that out to 300,000 contractors uh, by 2026. And what I really appreciated from this article was it really lays the framework for what every company is going to have to do, not, in, not simply in the defense industry, not simply government contractors, but every U.S. public and private company. And if I could tie back into our discussion a little bit earlier about the business, ESG being a business solution, there's going to be a business requirement for robust cybersecurity. And uh, the uh, information in this report shows the state of not only current cybersecurity in the defense industry, but also uh, where cybersecurity professionals see this going and what they're going to have to implement. So um, I think Matt's spot on. And one of the things that I've seen, you know, we, we both look at a variety of industries, uh, financial institutions, public corporations, private corporations, and many industries within that framework. But uh, defense industry and government contractors are going to have to lead the way uh, around cybersecurity. And so uh, get ready, it's coming. What do you have for us next? Yeah, nope. No kidding. Um, okay, so the next thing is an article from Geert Albers called How Has the Pandemic Affected the Anti-Corruption Fight in Latin America? And this comes to us from the FCPA blog. And the short answer to this question is badly. So Alberts looks at his 2021 Capacity to Combat Corruption Index, which I hadn't heard of, called the CCC. And it looks at basically uh, what's going on in these different countries from a legal and uh, prosecutorial perspective. And what he found was that 2020 and early 2021, that the pandemic uh, has led governments and citizens to shift their focus, which allows politicians to diminish judicial bodies' autonomy and resources without triggering outrage. 
which I thought was particularly interesting. We, we basically have eliminated a lot of the transparency requirements simply out of the emergency nature of what's happened. Um, what they found was that there are good good moments. Uh, the Dominican Republic, Panama, and Ecuador did see improvements, while Uruguay, Chile, and uh, Costa Rica remain stable. But Brazil, Mexico, and Colombia have lost a lot of steam. Um, and that's really sad because of all the enforcement that was going on in Brazil with all of the transnational anti-corruption investigations. Really, that momentum has just stalled, and it's creating a problem there. Um, Colombia has really been on a downward trajectory, according to the article, based on uh, essentially commingling of the executive power and the anti-corruption agencies, basically leading to people not trusting them. And in Mexico, uh, politica politicalization of the anti-corruption investigations and austerity measures cutting uh, the ability to conduct investigations. So a bit of a sad one from him, um, but I think something that we can hope improves if and when we come out of this pandemic. Christy, next up, we have uh, an article from Dylan Tokar, a second story from the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. And this is the continuing saga of the Lawrence Hoskin Halston bribery case. First, I want to shout out to Dylan because this is the single best summary of an incredibly long, winding technical case. And I even emailed him and I said, this is the best summary I've seen. Um, the second thing is, uh, it, uh, it, and I think you're enough of a law geek to really enjoy this case as well from the legal perspective, because basically the parent company Alstom in France uh, paid bribes in Indonesia to get a contract. Uh, Hoskins is a UK citizen working in France, not a US citizen, not working in the US subsidiary. Um, some of the bribes went through the US subsidiary. But Hoskins and four others are criminally charged. Hoskins is charged because he's alleged to be an agent of the U.S. subsidiary. Now, typically, subsidiaries can be agents of principal companies. It usually doesn't work the other way around. But they had to make this claim to get Hoskins uh, in front of a trial in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, the things that Hoskins alleged to have done was he was the one pushing the contract. He got the third parties who helped facilitate this, and he, I think, signed the contract on behalf of the company. That's a pretty slim amount of facts. Nevertheless, that persuaded a jury who heard the evidence to convict him. The judge overturned that conviction for violation of the FCPA, but upheld a conviction for money laundering. So he's currently serving 15-month 15, uh, 15 sentence for his money laundering conviction. Uh, the Department of Justice appealed the court's overturning of the verdict, um, at least in state court, it would be a motion for new trial. And um, mm -hmm. the hospital lawyers also uh, took up the appeal of his AML conviction. So we have both sides appealing opposite rulings. Uh, on appeal, uh, the government argued that they had met the standard in the court charge or definition of an agent because they had showed that even though Hoskins was higher on the org chart than the U.S. subsidiary, he, in fact, was the agent. Uh, Hoskins has argued that's the wrong legal standard. Uh, you can't be a principal and an agent at the same time. 
So what I really, and then here's really the saddest part, Christy. These events happened in, I think, 04, 05, Mm -hmm. um, 16 or 17 years ago. Lawrence Hoskins is 71. He went to federal prison at age 70. I mean, he's been living this and I think has been under indictment since 2012. So that's a really long time to have your life completely disrupted. And, um, and now he's in prison, although I think he's scheduled to get out uh, sometime soon. But this fluidity <clears throat> around an agent seems to me to make it really difficult for you to counsel a client on who's a principal and who's an agent. Is that something that's, that's one, correct? And then two, how would you, how would you think through this problem uh, and talk to a client about it? And now a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, me. Uh, yeah, I, I, way back in the day, I did uh, FCPA defense work with Gibson Dunn, um, where I came from, but it's been some time. Um, I think that it's, it's always something to be really cautious of when you're dealing with definitions and the Department of Justice. Um, we've seen so much action around, you know, what creates a nexus strong enough to even prosecute in the United States based on the different parts of, you know, what makes you a subject party, essentially. So, I, man, I, I think that it's always scary. I think it's always sad. I think the fact that it's 17 years ago is just really, really difficult to deal with. And, um, and the fact that, you know, these, these appeals will work their way through, but for him, it's over one way or the other, you don't get your time back. Um, and so I think that it, it just behooves you have a good compliance program. Don't get in trouble, I think is the bottom line for that. But yeah, I would definitely describe myself as a, as a law geek as well, for sure. Um, shifting from, okay, shifting from that, um, our number eight article comes from Martin Lipton, and it's titled More Myths from Lucien Bebchuk. Uh, it's published by the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. Um, basically, the crux of this article is really about what I would consider more or less this greenwashing idea from ESG, right? Are we serious about this stuff or not? And essentially, um, a critic from uh, called Lucien Bebchuk of the Harvard Law School um, published an article decrying corporations' non-commitment, uh, even though they've signed on to this commitment to stakeholder management. And the idea is the juxtaposition between the corporation should only serve the shareholders, right? Why do we have companies? Um, and the traditional answer is to serve the short-term goals of the shareholders, particularly with respect to dividends, as opposed to the idea of stakeholder management, which takes into account the interests of employees, customers, suppliers, communities, and the environment more holistically, which I think anybody thinking about business in a long-term perspective knows that's the better way to go, so we're not quite so quarterly driven. 
Um, but basically, Mr. Bebchuk took a whole bunch of reports and press releases and said, nobody's serious about this. This is nonsense. They're all just making, you know, pretty green font and saying they're doing something. Um, and the author, Mr. Lipton, argued using some specific examples from Sephora, Nike, General Motors, J.P. Morgan Chase, saying that these things are real. Um, for me, it comes down to active commitment. And it's really hard to tell unless you're on the inside, whether it's real. So great PR, great marketing, great all of that um, can make it look like you're doing something. Whereas actually being committed to doing something can kind of look the same. So it's one of the challenges to my mind in the greater picture of, of ESG generally, and also commitment to ethics, compliance, and integrity is what is really going on in your culture? What kind of accountability metrics are you actually meeting? Are you willing to say if you don't? Uh, and I think that to the point of this article, it's easy to find either of those in the corporate world. But ultimately, for me, um, that business winning out, like you said earlier, Tom, businesses that are more stakeholder management focused or stakeholder committed focused to a larger degree are going to win longer term because longer term thinking tends to create better long term outcomes. Chrissy, next up, we have an article from Rick Messick at the Global Anti-Corruption blog, and he talks about what he called the trial of the century currently going on in Mozambique, where the current and former president are accused of accepting up to $150 million in bribes to get uh, $2.1 billion in loans uh, for uh, dodgy projects, is the way Rick described it. Well, here's the project. The tuna boat fleet. What they contracted for was to borrow money to buy tuna boats so that uh, Mozambique fishermen could fish off the waters of their country. Um, unfortunately, no boats ever got bought and nothing ever got done, but the loans were funded and Mozambique now owes that money, even though it appears, or at least alleged, it was procured by fraud. Uh, so he talked a little bit about that where a um, uh, someone from the intelligence services testified that both the current and former president had accepted bribes. Also, uh, uh, contemporaneously, South Africa is considering whether to extradite Mozambique's former finance minister who signed off on these projects back to Mozambique to stand trial. Uh, the um, decision is between the United States uh, and uh, Mozambique. And a group of nonprofits, or NGOs rather, uh, intervened to try to stop the South African government from extraditing him to Mozambique, where they claim he will only receive a slap on the wrist, if that at all. Whereas in the United States, he might be subject to much lengthier penalties. Um, it really brings up a lot of interesting issues, and I should also uh, note parenthetically, Mozambique has no extradition treaty with the United States. Hmm. Man, mm. Fancy that. Um, so if he goes to Mozambique, he's the fear is he'll basically get off with uh, little or no penalty. Uh, so it brings up some very interesting issues of international law and uh, South Africa's commitment to the rule of law. Uh, but what happens if Mozambique says, we have a law and we're going to enforce it, and, and we completely reject the claim that we won't enforce it, and you can't tell us how to enforce our laws? So that's that's somewhat a persuasive argument to me. Any thoughts one way or the other, Christy? Um, when I was in 
private practice, um, there was this argument around, uh, Gibson Dunn was involved in a, a case with Chevron that had similar arguments about Ecuador and whether or not they could trust the government and the, the judiciary in Ecuador. And I see this coming up a lot in, in the international law sphere. Um, I think that it is a really challenging problem. Um, I think that it can also get into questions about arrogance on the U.S.'s part as well. Um, but I think you really should look at, you know, OECD commitments, look at what actually happens in practice. And ultimately, you know, we don't have a singular global tribunal other than at The Hague. So how are you going to make these decisions? Uh, I think it's as much political as it is um, outcome determinative. But um, that Mozambique one is, it's pretty special <laughs> in terms of what the alternatives are, right? This isn't, this isn't a small alternative. This is a giant one. We are to our final article of the week. What do you have for us, Christy? All righty. This is from my friend Michael Volkov, which is in the Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog called The Dangers of a Fractured C-Suite. Uh, and in it, he discusses the need for the CEO to have control of the direction of the senior leaders and the executives and essentially to be captain of the ship. And that there are places for jockeying for position and that it's normal and healthy, but essentially any kind of subterfuge or conflicting priorities could cause unrest and employee misconduct. Um, I struggled with this article. Um, I really, uh, I know that there's a lot of negotiation about, um, you know, not having hierarchical structure and the ability to talk back and to have, you know, speak truth to power and radical candor. And so I think that there is a middle ground between essentially subterfuge trying to take out the king or queen and the ability to make sure you have an open and transparent environment where people can give their ideas and that, that diversity of ideas actually creates opportunity. So I think that there there's really good stuff in here, but there may be a counter argument that needs to be balanced here too. We're now on to podcasts and events, and we're on the Compliance Podcast Network. I have a double shot of Christy this week because I interviewed herself, Jill Murphy, and Kirsten Liston about their book, their latest book, I should probably say, The Compliance Entrepreneur. So rather than me talk about the podcast, Christy, why don't you talk about the book? Sure. Uh, the Compliance Entrepreneur's Handbook is really for anybody that has ever thought, you know what, I'm going to be a consultant, I'm going to start a tech product, I'm going to go out there and make a difference in the compliance world because there's so much opportunity here. Uh, Joe Kirsten and I have very different businesses, um, all of which uh, have been able to thrive in this environment. And we really go through what does it take from beginning to end, lots of nuts and bolts, how you do cash flow analysis, what kind of structure you want, but also how to do the networking, how to build your business, exit strategies. Um, I think you'll really, if you're interested in entrepreneurship and compliance, it really is um, a book that can be very helpful. Well, I had a great time uh, having you three on the podcast. So check out the uh, Innovation and Compliance this week, where I, I talked to all three of the authors. Uh, and of course, uh, we, I linked to the Compliance Entrepreneur in the show notes for this. I linked to the show notes of innovation and compliance. This week, or rather, this week, rather, we had episode three on this month's series of The Compliance Life. I continue my conversation with, Christ, with Christy, uh, with Courtney Nordrum, uh, who is the CCO at Deluxe Corporation, as we would say in Texas, apparently deluxe for the rest of the world. What do you guys know? Um, and she uh, finds her passion. 
She goes to uh, Thomson Reuters, and then she uh, ends up at the SCCE, and she falls in love with compliance, and it continues her journey in compliance. Uh, if you've ever wanted to read Compliance Week articles, now's your time to do so. They have a, are having an open house for the month of August. They've taken their firewall down, their paywall. So check out the great work at Compliance Week. Uh, my book is still out, and it's still breaking news. Uh, the breaking news feature, I hope you've checked that out on LinkedIn or Facebook, but you can purchase my book uh, at LexisNexis uh, as well, and I link to that. I've got a couple of upcoming events uh, around the 20th anniversary of 9-11. K2 Integrity on September 15th is having a roundtable discussion where they're going to reflect on the 20th anniversary and consider its impact on countering terrorist financing and illicit financing and and the continued risks to um, national security. I link to information in the show notes. I am doing one of probably the most personal projects I've done in the podcast world. I'm going to have a six-part series looking back at 9-11 I interviewed six principals who lived through that. It was life-changing events for all of them. I'm going to largely focus on the compliance perspective, but I talked to one guy um, who was a senior in college at UCLA uh, in the fall of 2001, and he was in ROTC, and he was in the first wave that went into uh, Iraq. Uh, And he's going to talk about leadership lessons from that experience. But uh, I talked to uh, several people who were in Manhattan. I talked to one person who was in Washington and saw the Pentagon, uh, and they're well-known to all of us in the compliance community. So I hope that uh, you will join me starting uh, Monday, September 6th, for a week-long retrospective looking back on 9-11. For my tribute to Charlie Watts, I want to read a posting by my good friend Chris Bauer. I've been pondering what it means that Charlie Watts' passing has been wall-to-wall on my social media channels for the last day. It's not just coming from musicians, but with tributes and remembrances coming from all sorts of people who knew him as one of the guys from the Stones. I can't say that my thinking is yet terribly clear on this, but here's what comes to mind. Sure, to musicians who should know, he was a foundational to a foundational band. To non-musicians, He was a unique image in a band they likely loved. But I'm thinking there's more to this. It occurs to me that in this point in time, the Rolling Stones have become a part of the soundtrack of minimally two full generations, and one could make the case for saying it's been three. I'm guessing it's reasonable to say they've been heard by more people for longer than all but a very few. Sure, classical music is classical music because of how the forums have stayed with us, but unfortunately, its listenership and reach has never been the breadth of rock and roll. The few folks in jazz with stature of, say, Ellington or Miles continue to hold supreme depth of adoration by fans, but again, they never had the same reach. Sinatra had that level of adoration, However, partly because of his style of music and partly because he lived in a time before popular music was available to as many as easily, he and singers like him, I'm thinking, impacted on a smaller percentage of people. Elvis, love him or not, he may have been the first to have a truly titanic influence across age groups, culture, and geography, but even he, for all his impact, isn't necessarily championed a generation or two downstream fractionally as nearly as widely 
and as in his day. Then we have the Beatles and the Stones. <clears throat> Obviously, mass market radio and other modern mega-reach media played and continue to play a role in their omnipresence since the 60s. But whatever else besides their music might have been at play all these years, the fact is that they have been embedded in our ears and our minds for 50-ish years. That's a lot of ears for a lot of years. Of course, nothing contributed more to their reach than their music, but there's been a whole lot of great and greater music in all this time that has never been embraced or revered even remotely to the same degree and breadth of listeners, and again, not nearly for the same length of time. All through this dapper, kind, generous, stylish in a traditional sort of way, outwardly understated Charlie Watts propelled the music so many of us grew up with and so many of us still grow up with. That's really quite something. What exactly is it? I'm not quite sure, but it's quite something nevertheless. The last couple of years have been filled with terrible deaths of musicians and songwriters mourned deeply by musicians and songwriters. The death of Charlie Watts is being mourned by musicians and non-musicians alike in a way I don't remember seeing since Elvis put himself away. What do I take from all this? I can't say that I know yet. I'm not even convinced I'll agree with everyone later about what I've said. But I do know that Watts' death seems to have hit an awful lot of people unusually hard, and that especially it can't help but make me sad for a guy who is just a drummer, seems, feels profound. Those are the thoughts of Chris Bauer, and I certainly echo those thoughts. He was not a glimmer twin, but he was the backbone of the Rolling Stones. And if you're a drum head at all, you know that it's the drummer who really leads uh, the band because they set the rhythm of the band. It was a little bit different than the Stones when that rhythm was largely set uh, by Keith Richards, but Charlie Watts on the backbeat was as good as they come. Uh, at one point, he uh, shaved his long hair and he became Charlie the Monk Watts. And he was uh, a loyal husband, married for over 60 years to the same woman, really didn't engage in uh, much of the antics that the Stones are known for off the stage. But if you want to get a picture of Charlie Watts, look at him in a uh, English cut suit from Bond Street and contrast that with a cover of Get Your Yaya's Out. Charlie Watts, I loved you. I loved your drumming, and you'll be missed, but you are joining uh, that great band in rock and roll heaven. So, Christy, um, as always, it's been a ton of fun. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, sit in as the guest host this week, and I really hope uh, we figure out a way to do this more often. I love it. Take care, Tom. Have a great week. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you will join me for my upcoming Looking Back at 9-11 series, which will premiere on Monday, September 6th, and run for the entire week, including the day of 9-11. Also, I hope you will check out my latest podcast, The ESG Report, available on the Compliance Podcast Network or wherever you find podcasts. If you have any questions of either Christy or myself, I've given our email addresses on the show notes, and I hope you will reach out to us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. Jay Rosen is scheduled to return next week. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.